0: Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zelinski. For those of you that may not be aware of it, we've been working on a series right now going through the 12 minor prophets, and uh, we, as we mentioned, Haggai is next week, but who is the one for this Sunday? Zephaniah. Zephaniah. All right, who read Zephaniah this week? Just about everybody. Anybody read Zephaniah more than once? Good job. Keep it up. Haggai is even shorter, only two chapters. No reason you can't read through Haggai like 15 times over this next week. Okay, we can do it. It will make a huge difference. Now, as we jump into Zephaniah, there's something that starts right off the bat that is very different. Can anybody tell me what that is? Verse one, what is different about Zephaniah than any of the other 12 we've seen so far? What's that? mentions the king, said he's descended from a king. Zephaniah has the most extensive genealogy listed of any of the prophets we see in scripture. If you look, it gives four generations um, of his ancestry there. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, most believe that to be the Hezekiah who was the king of Judah at one point in their history. And um, that's the only significant Hezekiah that we see. And if that's the case, that would explain why they give four generations showing that he traces all the way back to one of the kings. So Zephaniah is not just a prophet, he also has a royalty about him. And that may explain some things that we're gonna look at here in just a moment. We can also date his prophecy pretty specifically. Now, he says that he prophesied during the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. We know that Josiah's reign began in 740 BC. So we have a very clear starting date for when Zephaniah could have prophesied. We also have some possible end dates here. If you've seen throughout the 12, they mentioned the fall of Assyria a lot. Anybody remember when Nineveh fell? Anybody remember the date? 612. 612 BC. Zephaniah prophesies about the fall of Nineveh, so we know that his prophecy was prior to 612. But we also know that what was Josiah most famous for as a king in Israel? He took down all the high places. He, he led probably the most extensive reform and renewal to the Lord in all of Judah. And his reforms began around 628 BC. And so most likely Zephaniah prophesied prior to those reforms because all the things Zephaniah is talking about are things that Josiah was dealing with and turning the hearts of the people back to serving the Lord wholeheartedly. And so we can really narrow this down between 640 and 628 BC. That's a 12-year window. Pretty remarkable that we can nail this down to a 12-year window of something that was, you know, 2,600 years ago. That's pretty cool. Something else that's interesting is if Josiah, uh, Josiah was the king, if Zephaniah truly was descended from Hezekiah, he's related to Josiah. That means he may have had an in with Josiah. That means Josiah's reforms may have been a result of Zephaniah's prophesying and bringing this word to him. So that's a a significant thing. You know, it's interesting. If you remember when we talked about Nahum, he was a nobody from nowhere prophesying to the greatest capital of the day of Nineveh. And yet here we have somebody that's a royal descendant, possibly with an end to the king that led a massive national reform among God's covenant people. Isn't it great that God uses everybody in every place, whether they're royalty or they're obscure, whether they come from a prominent place or from somewhere that nobody's ever heard of before? God will work through you, okay? God will work through you if you just let him do it. But Zephaniah also joins Obadiah and Nahum as not being quoted in the New Testament. Zephaniah is never quoted in the New Testament, nor is he mentioned anywhere else in scripture, other than what we see here. What Zephaniah does, though, in his short three chapters, is he elaborates on this thing called the day of the Lord more than any of the other 12. Now, that's one of the most consistent themes throughout all of the 12 minor prophets is the day of the Lord. But Zephaniah elaborates on it, unpacks it, explains it more fully than any of them. And really, the gist of that message is that judgment is coming but then salvation will follow. But it's going to get much, much, much worse before it gets much, much, much better. And that's something that most of them were not looking forward to. They weren't expecting it. But there was a a reality that judgment was coming, but be patient, let God deal with it, and then renewal and restoration and joy will follow with it. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning. We're gonna look at, number one, that we need to be prepared for judgment because judgment is coming. You know, the day of the Lord was not just a long ago thing. It's a a thing we're gonna see that has multiple fulfillments and there will be an ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus returns and uh, it's gonna be something that will be um, quite noticeable. Nobody's gonna mistake it for anything that's ever happened before. We also need to be alert. We need to be alert for the dangers that would would come upon us as, as his people. Because if you notice, all of this prophecy is primarily to God's people, warning them about their standing with the Lord and how their life is indicative of that. But then thirdly, we need to be excited for restoration. You know, none of, the, none of the prophets really just stay in the doom and gloom. Yes, it's going to get bad, but then yes, it's going to get unbelievably better. And the better is to a far greater degree than the worse. Remember, he, he visits sin and punishes sin to three and four generations. But how much does he show his grace and love to? A thousand generations of those who love him. There's no comparing God's blessing to God's judgment. It, it pales in comparison. So, number one here, be prepared for judgment. As you're reading through Zephaniah, was there anything that it reminded you of in those first few chap- in that first chapter, first few verses? What what does it kind of take you back to as you're reading through that? The flood. Absolutely. He's saying judgment is going to come in catastrophic proportions. I mean, look at this. In um, he kind of goes through. There's a uh, one of those chiasms we've talked about where things kind of build into the middle and work their way back out. But if you look at the beginning and ending of chapter one, verse two, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. But then if you look at the end of that chapter in verse 18, He says, I will make a full and sudden end. He will make an end of all the inhabitants of the earth. Said he would bring distress on all mankind. Clearly echoes of the flood when God is just sweeping away everything in judgment because of how wicked and sinful and evil and violent the people were. It was unbelievable. But we also see an interesting thing in verse three you remember what the order of creation was as God started making the living creatures? You know, he makes the fish of the sea and then the birds of the air and then the beasts and then people are kind of the crowning achievement of God's creation. But look at what Zephaniah says in verse three. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Going backwards, it's almost as if this judgment is undoing the very created order itself. That's significant. What he's saying is no small thing. The day of the Lord is gonna be devastating. And that's what he was saying to the people of his day, the people who were, were led astray, who had rejected serving God. He said, watch out. Because the day of the Lord is coming and it is going to be an awful thing. And for them, they experienced it. Right, Josiah led these reforms and that, that stayed the judgment for a time. But ultimately, as a result of the sin of this generation and their king before Josiah, Judah was exiled. They were completely taken out of the land and dispersed all over the Babylonian empire. But the people, they didn't think that would happen to them because they're thinking, well, we're God's chosen people. We're in a covenant relationship with God. His judgment surely won't come on us. God's not gonna treat us that way. That's just for all the people that are not God's people. Right? I mean, that's what they thought. Many of them viewed the day of the Lord in all the wrong ways. All the wrong ways. If you look in Amos, we're gonna take a a brief trip back to one of the previous prophets we've looked at in Amos chapter five. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. I mean, think about, don't we long for Jesus to come back? We long for that. That would be the day of the Lord. And and Paul deals with that. You know, some of you asked that the day of the Lord has come already. He said that day hasn't come yet in, in its final form. But he says, why would you desire the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Could you imagine, you know, you're one of God's covenant people and you hear this. Hey, wait, wait a minute. I thought, I thought we were good. I thought we're covered because we're, we're in this thing. Where we, we go by this name. We have this title. Judgment surely won't come on us. The day of the Lord wasn't just judgment on the nations. The day of the Lord is a complete and total cleansing of every source of sin and evil and wickedness and rebellion against God throughout all of the creation, including those of us that call ourselves by his name. No one is exempt from the possibility of judgment. And we have to be aware of that. That's not something we can't just rest on our laurels, so to speak, as an assumed status of Christian. Because we call ourselves something, we go by this title, sometimes that really doesn't mean what we think it means. And we have to give thought to that. In fact, the overwhelming majority of prophetic warning is to who? The people of God. All of it. Really, the the overwhelming majority of everything in Scripture is written to God's people, not to people who are not God's people. And we need to let that be a sobering reminder to us. Look at what we see in verse four of chapter one. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, it's easy for us, it's easy for us to not think about that as what it's really saying, because we're so distant. And we just feel, oh yeah, God's always sending judgment on Jerusalem. He's always sending judgment on Judah and Israel. And um, yeah, that, what, so what? Well, so what? I mean, this is, the, the temple hasn't been destroyed yet. God's presence is still there tangibly, physically. Uh, the only place on earth is in Jerusalem. And he's saying he's going to stretch out his hand against Jerusalem. Judah is the only remaining people. The northern kingdom had already been exiled. Judah were the faithful ones that hadn't been exiled yet. And he says, I'm gonna stretch my hand out against my covenant people and the place I've chosen to put my name forever. If we wanna contextualize this for us, this is like a prophet showing up and says, God says, I will stretch out my hand against the church and everyone who goes to church on Sundays. Now, doesn't that strike home a little different? But that's how it would have felt to people in Judah and people in Jerusalem who say, we're the people of God. We're here where he's worshiped. We do all of these things in his name, but we can't afford a false sense of security and a label. We can't do that. You know, because sometimes we we lie. Sometimes we say things of ourselves that are not true, and I had to deal with that. And we're going to look at that later as one of the dangers that we see here. But resurrection is, is a great thing. But something has to come before resurrection. Crucifixion. Restoration is great, but judgment and cleansing always come before the restoration. And where does this judgment and cleansing start? It starts with us. In 1 Peter chapter 4, he says it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know, we always think we hear these warnings of judgment and we assume that it's just on the non-believer, but we have to realize that judgment and cleansing and renewal always starts here with the people of God, those who claim to be his people, those who call themselves by his name. We are the ones that God will look to first because we should be the ones representing and demonstrating him to the world. And so it will start with us. So for us as believers, we need to be prepared for judgment because there's a reality of judgment that is coming on the world. Remember how we talked about prophecy having multiple fulfillments? typically, and one of the the clearest examples is the virgin birth. Isaiah prophesied about that, and he gave some things that would happen within two years. And within two years, his, his wife, who was a young maiden, that the word would also cover that, she had a child. That was the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah. But then there was an ultimate future fulfillment of Jesus being born of a virgin. And so we see these things like the day of the Lord they experienced the day of the Lord when Babylon came in and wiped out Jerusalem. But Israel had already experienced the day of the Lord 150 years earlier when Assyria came in and wiped out the northern kingdom. And we, we see the day of the Lord happen throughout human history. We may experience the day of the Lord in our nation One day we'll experience the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back in its ultimate final form. And we need to be ready for that because it will come and it won't delay. But in light of that, we need to be aware of what what dangers can put us in trouble. See, Zephaniah doesn't just say judgment's coming and leave it like that. That's what Jonah did. Jonah didn't try to tell them what to repent of. He didn't want them to repent. He didn't want God to forgive. He just said, hey, in 40 days, you guys are going down. Left it at that. Zephaniah didn't. Zephaniah points out several of the things that were going on that God was going to deal with. We see in chapter one, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Think about that imagery. You ever stop and just think about the pictures that are painted There. Picture God, if he needs a lamp, what time is it? Nighttime, it's dark. Imagine Jerusalem, dark at night. God going through with a lamp, searching, looking, purposing to find, and he says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. God is looking. He's looking. He's gonna deal with complacency. And literally, if, you're, if your text there has a, a note or a reference to a footnote or something, the, the Hebrew text actually says, I will punish those who are thickening on the dregs. It's talking about wine that has been left too long and it starts to thicken and congeal because it's just sitting there doing nothing. Nothing. And God says, I'm gonna deal with that. Be aware of complacency. Complacency is where we feel like kind of we've arrived, we've achieved what we need to, and now we can just sort of ride this thing out. You know, that's how we get, we get to this place that we feel like we can just live off of our our past experiences. You know, well, I got saved this many years ago. Okay, are you any closer to Jesus now than you were when you first committed your life to him? Or we, especially in, in uh, Pentecostal circles, we talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and they say, well, I got filled with the Holy Spirit 25 years ago. Well, from your life, you may not have been filled since then. We can't, it's not that sort of a thing. You read in Acts, Peter's filled all the time. It's a continuous thing. We can never just feel like we've arrived and we're just riding this thing out till we die and go to heaven. That's being complacent. And that's what God says he's going to go searching with lamps, finding those that are complacent and deal with them. He also goes on to say, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. In other words, God's not really going to do anything. Look at my life. God hasn't ever actually done anything of significance. He doesn't really bless me that much. He doesn't really punish me when I do things wrong. It's just kind of, eh, you know, whatever. Apathy. Apathy. Apathy is a killer. Complacency is a killer. But where they're different, complacency, you feel like you've arrived and you can just coast. Apathy is where you really just don't care. It just doesn't matter that much. And none of us would probably say, Yeah, I'm pretty apathetic towards the Lord. But if we look at our lives, is there anything of our life that actually shows we're concerned about the Lord besides coming to church on Sunday morning? Is there anything in your marriage that shows Christ is the center of it? Is there anything in your family that shows Christ is the center of it? Is there anything in your vocation when you go to work Monday through Friday or whatever your work schedule is, is there anything that shows that Jesus is actually the center of your life and that you are all about living for him? We also see in chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, hypocrisy. This is something I remember years ago reading through uh, Zephaniah. This stood out to me because it was so, just so interesting the way this is worded. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place, the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens in other words, they're bowing down, worshiping the stars, worshiping constellations, worshiping false gods. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. That's one of the gods they, they would worship. Those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. You notice they, they don't follow the Lord. They don't seek the Lord. They don't inquire of the Lord but they bow down and swear to the Lord. Did you pick up on that? These are people who actually bow down and swear their allegiance to the Lord. There's just nothing in their life that follows that because they still worship other things. They still serve other things. That's the essence of a hypocrite. We tend to think of one who says one thing but does another. Ultimately, it's somebody who's not being true to themselves, true to who they really are with what they're saying and doing. The word actually comes from uh, the theater. A hypocrite was an actor. Why? Because they, they put a mask on and they pretended to be somebody else on stage. That's, that's what an actor is. An actor is a hypocrite. They are something, but they pretend to be something else. We can't do that as we can't swear allegiance to Jesus and go through the ritual of coming to church and bowing down, swearing our allegiance to the Lord, but we don't really follow him, we don't seek him, we don't inquire of him, nothing of our life is really about him. And that is too rampant in the church today. We can't have it. Remember, there's a judgment coming and it's real and we're not exempt. It, in fact, it starts with us. We have to be aware of complacency, of apathy, of hypocrisy. You know, when when we say we're Christians and we say we follow Jesus, but then our life doesn't line up, that's like calling yourself a vegetarian while you're eating steak, okay? Just take another bite of steak, you've got some wings, some ribs on the side, some pulled pork over here, some brisket. Like, Oh yeah, I'm a vegetarian though. That's what we do. We say I'm devoted to Jesus and then nothing in our life looks like that. We, and we say, "Well, but I've called on the name of the Lord. Well, I can call myself a professional football player, but you can look at me and tell that's not the case." Right? We say a lot of things. But as people, we we can lie whether it's intentional or unintentional, we we say we follow Jesus. We say Jesus is Lord. But you know, when, when it says that we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's not saying we have to make a verbal affirmation. It's saying we actually have to surrender to the lordship of Jesus in our life. Anything less than a full surrender to his lordship in every aspect, every facet of life, public, private, there's no difference in him. Anything less than that is calling yourself a vegetarian, continuing to eat the steak. It doesn't work that way. The substance of your life will verify it, not just a verbal affirmation. So what we have to do is know that judgment is coming and we have to be aware of these dangers, okay? We have to be intentional about it and ultimately follow the call of Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. He says to seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. See, the greatest security we can have is a vibrant, growing, healthy walk with Jesus. And if your walk with him is growing and you're getting closer to Jesus daily, you have nothing to be concerned about. Nothing at all. That's a joyful thing. But if all you have is a verbal affirmation and all you can point to is the prayer that you prayed 15 years ago, I don't know if I'd be quite so confident about the day of the Lord. I think I'd wanna spend a little more time getting to know Jesus. So be aware of those dangers. But praise God, the... uh, doom and gloom isn't all there is. Right? Persecution, suffering, judgment, that's not the end of the story. And the prophets, they typically don't stay there. There's this progression that moves through and you know, as I was getting this together to think about how to present this to you, I really wanted to put that section of the dangers last. I wanted to talk about that last and let that really be something that we we wrestle with because we need to. We absolutely need to. But one of the things that I think is very um, very necessary with expository preaching is, this isn't for me to give you my opinion. This isn't me giving you my take. This is me doing my best to just open the word of God to you to see it for what it is. And a part of that I feel strongly about is letting the, the, the tone of the text come through in the tone of the sermon. And so if there, if there is a prophet that all it is is doom and gloom, that's just going to be a rough sermon to get through because it's not going to be very joyful. But as I was wrestling with that, I didn't want to end on such a heavy note. And the reason why is because Zephaniah doesn't end on that heavy note. Zephaniah deals with those things working through, but he finishes up in chapter three with the joy of restoration that comes. And so we're going to do the same. There's judgment we need to be prepared for. There are dangers we need to be aware of. But there's a restoration we need to be excited about. And I don't mean just a superficial happiness that we say something here and there, but a deep, settled, real, true joy in our hearts that we know Jesus is coming and he's gonna make every wrong right. He's gonna fix everything. He's gonna renew and restore his creation to the fullest. And those who are truly following Jesus will absolutely avoid the judgment with nothing to fear from it. Look again at the beginning of chapter two here. This is, this is incredible. In the midst of this, you know, as soon as he finished talking about this day of the Lord that would come and sweep away everything in catastrophic flood type language, He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. If you didn't notice, repetition is one of Zephaniah's key literary devices. Did you see the repetition of before this, before this happens, before there comes this, before that goes down? In other words, before this happens, you can still do something about it. It's not fixed in stone. It never is. Just like Jonah's word that in 40 days Nineveh would perish, he didn't even offer the, so repent, but when they did, God responded. So not only will we miss out on the judgment. But when we see the judgment coming, we should start to perk up a little bit. Because the judgment, the cleansing, the renewal is the first step in God's plan of restoration. Okay, he can't just make everything right until he deals with the evil and sin that shouldn't be in his creation to begin with. Those things have to happen first. And it's always that way. It's always that way. When you look at one of the the most significant events in Israel's history, the Exodus, God's wrath was displayed in in terrible awe and wonder against the Egyptians so that the people of God could come out and be established as his covenant people. But that display of his judgment and wrath had to come first. When you look in the revelation at the end of Scripture describing uh, what the believers went through and ultimately what the final day of the Lord will look like, The end is great, but what happens before everything is all great in heaven? There's this terrible display of God's wrath on the earth. But in the midst of both of those things, God's people are there, but God's people are protected. Israel didn't come out of Egypt until after all the plagues. But if you read through that narrative, the plagues didn't affect the land where Israel lived. If you look in Revelation, God's people are sealed and have a mark placed on them so that the plagues won't affect them. That means they're there. Because if none of God's people are there, who's getting marked for the plagues to not bother them? But the plagues don't affect them because we don't experience the wrath of God. We may face persecution. We may deal with the things that come along with the Antichrist, but we will not face the wrath of God. And even Paul In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is an often overlooked passage that I want to draw some attention to, just because of the way Paul discusses this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is writing and he he encourages them. He says that we, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. In other words, could you imagine being the Thessalonian church? Paul's going around to other churches bragging about how much we're being persecuted and suffering for Jesus. There might be some better things he could boast about us for than that, but that's what he's doing. And he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now we all agree with that, right? God is gonna deal with those that afflict us. God considers that just to punish those who afflict his people. But here's the kicker. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, in the midst of the persecution and the suffering and the affliction he was living and the things that they were dealing with, he says, you and I will all get relief when Jesus comes in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel. But after that, then we're with the Lord forever. So there's that, that both things need to happen. Judgment comes first. We don't experience it. Those who are faithful and committed to God But then the restoration comes as he finally deals with all of the evil, all of the the causes of sin and rebellion in his creation will be dealt with because he's cleansing it. Judgment is not just punitive, it's cleansing in nature to remove those things from his creation that don't belong there so that we can truly be who he's created us to be. And that's a wonderful thing. And I love Zephaniah's description of how he wraps this thing up. Look at verse 17. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. The Lord your God is in your midst. Right there, that's huge. God is with you. He is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Think about that. God is not just whispering this quiet little, yay, I love them. He says he's going to exalt over you with loud singing. Loud singing. And that's you. You know, sometimes we, we don't like to personalize things or we, maybe we have a hard time personalizing this, but you need to take this for a moment and, and personalize it. He's going to do that. He's going to rejoice over you with gladness. Now, some of our first thoughts are, well, you know, but there's this and I'm not that and stop it. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't go there. Listen to what the scriptures say and take them to heart. He is going to rejoice over you with gladness. Those voices that rise up, look at what he said again. He will quiet you by his love. And he's going to exalt over you with loud singing. That's the joy of the restoration that the day of the Lord will culminate with. Jesus singing over you. I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing. Amazing. God's kingdom is going to come. His will is going to be accomplished. There's nothing the enemy can do about that. There's nothing uh, anyone can do. None of the world's systems, none of the world's ways can stop the kingdom of God from coming. It will come. Jesus will come and he will establish his rule and reign. And we have to wait for the final reality of that. We can't rush that. We can't fabricate that. We can't do anything until Jesus shows up on that final front. But we don't have to wait for that to start living the kingdom life now. You know, when Jesus talked about eternal life, he didn't say eternal life is living forever in a quantity sense. He said, this is eternal life, knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus, his son, whom he sent. Eternal life is knowing God because when you know him, everything changes. When you begin to realize who he is and you begin to realize who you really are in him, everything changes. Absolutely everything in life changes. Your mindset changes, insecurities fade, doubts fade, fears fade. Joy rises up, peace rises up because we know who God is. And we can get a taste of eternal life and live it now. Nothing in scripture says you have to die in the flesh before you can begin living eternal life. There is a death that we experience, the death to self that we die as we're buried with Christ in baptism and rise with him to walk in new life. And that death is sufficient for us to begin living eternal life. We can live it even now. We don't have to wait on that. Don't wait on that. We just need to know Jesus and have this loving, interactive relationship with him we we engage with him we talk to him we hear from him we we commune with him we worship him that is is the essence of it and we can do that and live that even now so don't buy into the lie that you just have to wait to die and go to heaven that's not the case too often our christianity is pray this prayer now when you die you'll be okay that's not it that's not it at all. I mean, yes, that's true, but that's not it. Jesus didn't call us to sit around and wait till we die and go to heaven. He called us to live a joyful life in the kingdom now, serving and honoring and worshiping the one who exalts over us with loud singing and rejoices over us with gladness. So as we think about Zephaniah and this message that he brought, it sparked a massive renewal in the kingdom and delayed God's judgment and brought about an incredible salvation for that generation. And I pray that it would have the same impact on us. There's a judgment coming and it's real and no one is exempt on the surface of it. But be aware for those things. Be aware for complacency, be aware of apathy, Be aware of hypocrisy. Three of the biggest things that we see plaguing the church of our day, plaguing the people of God back then. Don't let those things take root, but fully devote yourself to seeking the Lord so that you can experience the joy and the excitement of when the day of the Lord comes, that we'll get to be on the restoration, the joy, the salvation side of this thing to see when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom to the fullest. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast, produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decatur, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.